Well, if you would, find Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and I'm going to begin by reading our text, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 18, and uh, I'll go all the way through chapter 4, verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart which, with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it, so the people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same as one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring to see, who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Oh, 
Last week, I began with a short story uh, by Leo Tolstoy. Today, I begin with a long story by Leo Tolstoy, Anna Karenina. One of the main characters is a man by the name of Levin. Insecurity and doubt plague Levin's life. He struggles to find his place in the world. His anxieties lead him to the brink of suicide. And in one of his darkest moments, he utters these words. It's true that it's time to die and that everything is nonsense. I'll tell you truly, I value my thought and work terribly. But in essence, think about it. This whole world of ours is just a bit of mildew that grew over a tiny planet. And we think we can have something great. Thoughts, deeds, they're all grains of sand. You know, when I was telling people I was going to start Ecclesiastes, there were two responses. Some people thought, oh, this is great. And some thought, oh, no. In other words, weeks and weeks of thinking about the futility of life. And that's where Levin lived. He lived thinking that life really is futile. He didn't find any joy in his work. Uh, he looked at the world and he saw no meaning, no purpose, and no God. And so obviously Levin's words aren't the words of a Christian. Christianity speaks of life having purpose and meaning and value. Christianity speaks of a good and a sovereign God who made us, who wants us to know him, who wants us to enjoy him to enjoy the world that he has made. Levin didn't see any of that. And the Bible isn't, isn't just for people who are convinced that God is good. Now, I know that on Sunday morning, right now, most of you are convinced that God is good. But I want you to know that the Bible isn't just for those who are convinced of this. The Bible is for Levins. The Bible is for skeptics and for questioners and for doubters. Every thought you've ever had about God has been had by at least one of the writers of the Bible before you. The Bible is an honest book, and it takes every objection to God and every objection to life under God head on. So like a Kevlar jacket that can take the strongest bullet, right? the Bible will not be pierced. It will not be shredded by your objections, by your doubts, or by your anxieties. And Ecclesiastes is a prime example of the wisdom of the Bible and the way the God of the Bible knows you better than you know yourself. Ecclesiastes is a great place to see that. It's an amazing Old Testament book. Now, many take it to be the words of King Solomon, written during the sunset years of his life. And in these words, he would be describing the the, the, the thoughts that went through his mind over the years as he wrestled with the, the deep things of life and struggle to find a true and living faith. It's certainly a book written by an old and a wise man. As you can tell, it's not written in a style that we as uh, Bible readers are really accustomed to. Uh, the, the, we call him the preacher. He identifies himself as the gatherer, or the teacher, the preacher. The preacher uh, brings up an idea, touches it, sets it down, and then moves along for a few verses or another few chapters before bringing up that idea again. Now, if, if we talked to one another like that, we would drive one another crazy. But God doesn't care about that. He's given us a unique, a unique uh, uh, scripture here, a unique book of the Bible, uh, which certainly reflects in some degree the, the way that the Hebrew people would, would write, uh, especially with regard to poetry, and he's happy for us to stew in, to meditate upon, to return to ideas that really can't be thought about quickly. And in the Twitter age, that's exactly what we want to do. We want to think about things quickly. And Ecclesiastes doesn't let us do that. Ecclesiastes teaches us that we are not a bit of mildew growing over a tiny planet, but not simply by rejecting that idea, but by at times embracing it and seeing where it finally falls short. We are divine image bearers, purposefully placed on earth to give God the glory in everything we do. And because most of our time is devoted to work and not leisure in one form or fashion, the preacher in our passage focuses on work. So work then is going to be the focus of this particular sermon. 
I want to talk about three aspects of work. First, the problem of work. The problem. Second, the pain of work. And then third, the God of work. Problem, pain, and God. And may God use this message to help us realize that we can find joy in our work. Now, first, the the problem of work. Now, we know from Genesis chapter 3 that when Adam fell, when Adam fell into sin, all of creation, everything, became subjected to frustration, including then our work. Work since the fall would forever be difficult. It would forever be, be toil, right? Why do printer machines jam right before your meeting? That's the fall, right? Why, do, why does your computer crash without automatically saving the document you've been working on for hours? Right? That's, that's the fall, right? That's how Adam's sin affected everything. Now, the preacher of Ecclesiastes surveys the work under the sun, and he provides a thumbnail sketch of just how corrupt, how problematic our work has become. And he provides several examples, not, not trivial like the ones I mentioned, but deep and serious. <clears throat> and the first is oppression. So look at chapter 3, verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness, right? Under the sun, in this life, there is no guarantee of a just contract or an honest deal. Wickedness often stands in the place of justice and in the place of righteousness. There's no guarantee in this world of righteous dealings with other people. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. Now, now oppression has been part of the world and part of work since the fall Cain oppressed Abel. We've seen oppression in severe, violent forms like slavery, but we've also seen it on the job site, right? When the boss uses his power to protect his own job and not the well-being of his employees. Work under the sun is full of oppression. It's a quick note, if you are a a leader, if you are someone in a position of authority, keep this in mind. Maybe you aren't deliberately oppressing anybody, but are you caring for those who work under you? Are you seeking their best? Are you trying to help them succeed, not just as workers, but as divine image bearers? The, The preacher surveyed the world and he saw an awful lot of oppression. Now, the second problem the preacher draws our attention to is the problem of idolatry. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. So, in verse 4, the problem there, obviously, is, is envy. A man or woman is actually more interested in being recognized and being applauded than actually accomplishing a goal or completing a project. You could say that that he has become the goal or she has become the project. I once worked in an office with a man by the name of Grant. Grant usually came in late. I'd see him in his chair leaning back, a newspaper in his hand, his feet up on his desk. Grant never seemed to worry. Uh, He never really seemed to work hard either, but I have to say, everything he touched somehow seemed to turn to gold. I had no explanation for this, but I was tempted to measure my success in that office, not in terms of my own faithfulness, but in terms of Grant. Oh, Grant. I wanted to outperform him. I practiced envy. Now, now verse 5 is not about envy. Verse 5 is about laziness, right? The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. It's 
kind of a gross verse. Uh, folded hands is a Hebrew expression for loafing, for being lazy, Proverbs 6.10. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber. Right. So do you see the, the envious worker and the lazy worker, they both have one thing in common. One works because he's made an idol out of himself. He works too much because he's made an idol out of himself, and he desperately wants to be proven to be great in the eyes of other people. He's envious. He's made an idol out of himself. He longs to be seen as better than those around him. The other works too little because he's made an idol out of himself, out of his own comfort. He'll do everything he can to keep life from becoming too hard. The envious worker idolizes his image. The lazy worker idolizes his comfort. They're both idolaters. Neither have a proper or a healthy or a balanced view of work. Now, the next problem that the preacher identifies is really the main problem. This is really mainly what he wants us to be thinking about in these chapters. The problem of meaning or of finding meaning in life and in work. The preacher makes a practical observation. Let's say, let's say you get that amazing promotion that leads to a corner office, assuming people were still working in offices, or a stake in the firm. And let's say the business is great and you've got more money than you can spend. Does it all really matter if the next generation runs the business into the ground? Well, you may think it doesn't matter at all. But for the preacher, it mattered a great deal. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 18 again. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. This also is vapor. This also is fleeting. Now, I know a lot of people who would say they'd be happy to enjoy wealth now while they're alive and let future generations worry about themselves. But that's not the attitude of the preacher. He longs for his work to have meaning that outlasts him. And before we criticize him for caring too much about the future, let's admit that we know a little bit of what he's talking about. Right? If we're honest, we all want to leave behind something we all want to leave behind some kind of lasting legacy. We want to live a meaningful life, and we assume that that means at least being remembered for a little while after we're gone. When I came to Mount Vernon in 2008, the conference room had a portrait of each of the former pastors. Now, this was pretty common practice in American churches uh, certainly in the 20th century. I don't know when or how exactly the practice started, but I understand it's a, a way to honor uh, the pastor uh, who went before you, uh, the man who presumably cared faithfully over the flock and trusted to his care. Still, I took the pictures down. Not because I thought it was sinful and not because I wanted to forget our past, but because I just know my own heart. And I think my soul is better served not by thinking about my picture hanging on the wall, like right over there, when I was younger, a picture of me without gray hair, of course. But I thought I would be better served by somehow trying to find a way to lean into the counsel of Count Zinzendorf, who helped mobilize the Moravians into the mission field so many centuries ago. Zinzendorf, who said, preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. Well, the preacher certainly isn't, isn't ready to be forgotten. In fact, the, the most horrific end that he can imagine is someone working and working and working and no one being around to notice and no one being around to leave anything to. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no, no other, either son or brother, Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Well, I think we established last week 
that will probably not be remembered by our great-grandkids, but we'd like to try. Not out of pride, but because each of us lives with a sense that if our lives are going to have meaning, then our work must somehow outlast us. We want to pass something down. Maybe not a company, but maybe a watch, maybe a, a dress, maybe a painting. But what happens when you're all alone? What happens when there's nobody to whom you can leave anything? And that's the problem of verses 7 and 8. As the preacher lived his life under the sun, he identified the problems with work, oppression, idolatry, meaning. And these problems, they take their toll on a person. And that brings us to point number two. Second, the pain of work. Now, by pain, I'm talking about the, 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 the hurt. I'm talking about the frustration. I'm talking about the, the difficulty caused by all these problems, the, the toll that they take on a person. Now, so far, I've simply tried to lay out the facts, right? The, the problems the preacher saw. But now, I want you to see how these problems affected him and how they affect others. So, look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16 again. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same as one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Now this is a confusing paragraph. This is a confusing paragraph. In verse, 17, in verse 17, he speaks truth. God will judge the oppressor. Right? That's good news. In verse 18, he says, life on earth is a test. Right? Why is life so hard? It is meant to show you your own mortality. Right? Life is so hard so that you recognize beyond any reasonable shadow of a doubt that you are not God and that you need help. God wants us, wants us to understand that life is fleeting, that we are mortal, and therefore that only God can be our rock and our anchor. But in verses 19 to 21, the preacher sort of spirals down. He loses perspective. He begins to wonder if we are actually no better off than the beasts of the field when we are oppressed by those in power which, of course, is how the paragraph begins. A beast of burden lives life under the sun with no thought of life after death, and there's nothing more hopeless or more futile than that. If you think the world, this world, is all there is, then all you've got is your work. If you think that this world is all, all there is, there's nothing that you have to do but to devote yourself to whatever to-do list makes up your life because that's all there is. You'll just try to make the best of it until you die. I think that's the point of verse 22. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? I think this is not a, a good joy. Right? This is a, a joy without joy. It's getting lost in your work because it's all you have to value. It's being resigned to the idea that if this is as good as it gets, we might as well make the most of it. Now, all right, so far so bad. Kind of just gets worse. Chapter 4, verse 1. <clears throat> Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Now, if you have ever really been oppressed, if you have ever really been 
abused. You might, at times, have concluded that it would be better if you had never been born. Verse 3, if you had not yet been and not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Some of you have seen wicked things. Some of you have seen awful things that you wish you had never seen. You've experienced things you wish you had never experienced. Maybe you've witnessed tremendous injustice. And maybe this led you to wonder if you should even be here at all. And if that's you, if you have had thoughts like this, you're not alone. Ecclesiastes shows you that many have felt the way you have felt. Now, what about those envious workers of chapter 4, verse 4? What's the pain of their work? The preacher says it's a vapor, a striving after wind. If, if envy motivates your work, you are like someone who takes a plastic bag, pokes holes in it, and then tries to catch the air. Striving after wind. That's what the preacher says, working with a heart motivated by envy or jealousy is. Striving after wind. Envy may motivate you to work harder, maybe even harder than Grant. Well, Grant really didn't work that hard. I don't know how he did what he did. But what will you ultimately get for all your work motivated by envy? A trophy, again, that corner office, a bigger paycheck. We would all like more money. But is that really going to satisfy you? Money brings pleasure, but it also brings pain. That old series, The Twilight Zone, had some of the best social commentary that television ever had to offer. In one episode of The Twilight Zone, a common thief is killed. He wakes up in a beautiful house. And he has everything he wants. Uh, he's got uh, great food and pretty women, and he always wins whatever game he plays, whatever gambling, escapade. He always wins. He's raking in the money, and it's great, but only for a while because it takes less than a day for him to realize he's not in heaven. He's in hell, a striving after wind. Joy cannot be found in working hard and accumulating much. The biggest problem facing the preacher is that elusive search for meaning. Right? He's looking for the answer to that ultim ultimate question, what's it all for? What did the preacher do when he realized that he could not guarantee that his wealth would fall into safe hands when he died? He fell into despair. Chapter 2, verse 20. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled without, with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity." Now, he is at a pretty low moment right now. Sorrow, vexation, vapor, uh, it's all futile. Most of you, most of us don't let our minds go down this rabbit trail of despair, but some do, right? There's a lot of talk, for example, about the effects of COVID-19 and social isolation on rates of suicide. But regardless of what happens in 2020, there is no doubt that suicide rates have been rising steadily for years. Many of us, I could almost say all of us, know some family whose life has been touched by suicide. Now, you may never have considered ending your own life. Those, but you may have thought about it. And those thoughts may invade your mind like unwanted guests. You look at your life and you just aren't convinced that you matter. It's all sorrow and vexation to you. The preacher of Ecclesiastes gives you words that maybe match your own heart. 
In your darkest moments, you resign yourself to the thought that nothing you do is all that important. And maybe it would be better if you just were gone. Do you remember Levin from Anna Karenina? He found himself in the slew of despond. Here's how he described the meaninglessness of life. Death would come, he said, and everything would end. That it was not worth starting anything and that nothing could possibly be done about it. Yes, it was terrible, but it was so. So these are hard and discouraging and dark thoughts about life and about work. And I present them to you recognizing that none of this is going to cheer you up. I know that. I present this to you as the unvarnished reflections of the preacher found in the Word of God, the Bible. I present them to you from the Bible so you realize that wherever you are, the Bible understands you. Not only do the writers of the Bible understand you, but God, the divine author himself, understands you because he made you, he understands you better than you understand yourself. And not merely because he made you, but because God in Christ experienced agony, not unlike the agony we find recorded by the preacher reflecting upon his own life. Jesus had great work to do, bearing our sin on that ugly tree. Jesus had to walk into oppression for our envy, which is a sin, and our laziness, which is a sin, right? For our idolatry, which is a sin, right? This was his work. And there were moments when the realization that he had spent 30 years of his life living with sinful humanity, and now he was about to die a death he did not deserve, there were moments when that realization came crashing down on his head with such strength, with such weight, that he felt like he could hardly breathe. In Luke 22, we're told Jesus knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. You think nobody understands you? You think no one knows what it's like to have deep anxiety and to be troubled? Not true. Jesus never lost sight of his goal, which was our salvation, but he was tempted to despair. He was tempted to give up. He was tempted to think it just might not be worth it. He experienced sorrow. He experienced grief. He experienced vexation. He understands. So, wherever you are spiritually today, all right, whatever agony you may be facing, you cannot rightly say that no one understands. Right? Ecclesiastes is a book that clearly understands what it's like to go through life wondering what it's all about. Jesus understands better than you'll ever know. He didn't just work for the salvation of sinners like you and me. He bore the pain, all of it, on that cross so that we might know him and so that we might have life and so that we might, in the midst of problematic, painful work, so that we might have joy. Now, as I preach through Ecclesiastes, I want you to experience Ecclesiastes. And so far in chapters 1 through 4, much of Ecclesiastes is getting you to understand what it's like to feel the fleeting nature of life and how at times it can feel like nothing at all matters. But if you're paying attention, as I read the text aloud, you know that there's more to Ecclesiastes than what I've shared so far in the sermon today. So I don't want to just speak about the problem of work, and I don't want to just speak about the pain of work, which I hope you all understand, but I want you to leave this morning better understanding the God of work. We all care about our work. We all want it to be meaningful. Even if we are just a small cog in a big machine, we would at least like to think that we're adding some value, right? If you get sick or go on vacation, doesn't a small part of you hope that things kind of fall apart? You're not going to admit that. I know it. We all want to think that we are valuable. 
but we're never going to find meaning or value or satisfaction in our work until we know the God of work and see how God and God alone can make our work valuable and joyful. Listen to the preacher. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting. Only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Now, when you are at your lowest and you think you cannot last another day at your job, you cannot uh, persevere another day in retirement, what are you to do? The preacher tells us, eat and drink and find enjoyment in your toil. In other words, you are free to enjoy your work and the fruit of your work. Whether you are a short-order cook or a CEO, you are free to enjoy your life and your work. And why? Why should you enjoy your work? Because your job is so important? No. Because the God who gave you that work is important. Verse 24 says, This also is from the hand of God. This, your work, is from the hand of God. Your work is no accident. You are where you are because the all-knowing, all-loving, all-good and sovereign hand of God put you there. And you can rest in the fact that God has given you work. Whether you're at home changing diapers or in the restaurant bussing tables or in the office filing reports, so much of our anxiety and our frustration and our depression comes from thinking we should be somewhere else, doing something else, and doing something else better, by the way. We wish we'd done more. We'd wish we'd do more. In the words of that struggling boxer from On the Waterfront, I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been a somebody. Uh, But that is worldly wisdom. That is where the world teaches you to, what the world teaches you to discourage you. Remember, we worship a good God. We worship a great God, a God who places his children where he sees fit. Right, the preacher has a lot of questions. He's going through a lot. He's sharing you all of his ups and downs. But at the end of the day, at the end of his life, he recognized that his work came from the hand of God. There are no accidents in God's divine economy. He's not the author of sin, but neither is he taken by surprise or hampered by anything, including our jobs. Now, I'm not saying you should never look for another job, right? Take a deep breath. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with moving on or quitting, right? Changing careers, changing states. I'm not saying any of that. I'm simply asking you to stop measuring your success by the standards of the world. The world says work is good if we like it and if it makes much of us and our gifts, Right? The world says our work is good if we like it and if it makes much of us and our gifts. God says work is good if it is honest and if it makes much of Him and His glory. None of our work will be worth anything if Verse 25, it is done apart from God. Verse 25 is really important. Our work cannot be done apart from God and still be valuable. You will never enjoy your work unless you decide here and now that you are going to work for God. Not for paycheck, not for name, not for a legacy, but for God. I love how Sebastian Traeger and Greg Gilbert put it in their wonderful little book, The Gospel and Work. They write, no matter what you do, 
your job has inherent purpose and meaning because you are doing it ultimately for the king. Who you work for is more important than what you do. The world will tell you otherwise. The world will tell you that life finds its meaning and success at work or that work is just a necessary evil on the path to leisure. All those ways of thinking are lies. You work for Jesus. Now this, of course, is what Paul said in Colossians 3, 23, when he wrote, whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord, and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And this is what the preacher meant, I think, in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 26. For to the one who pleases him, that is, pleases God, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the one, but to the sinner, he has given the busyness of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. The one who works to please God, the king, he will rejoice in his work. But the one who works to please himself, and that's the sinner there, the one who works to please himself, he will find his work as fulfilling as choking on a mouthful of gravel. Now, maybe you're thinking, Aaron, you just don't know how hard my work is. And all that sounds really great, but you do not know how hard it is for me where I am doing what I'm doing. You don't realize how badly I'm treated. How can I really serve Christ in my work, where I am, at my stage in life? Well, the answer to that question is not to be given by me, to be given by God. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1. Let me read these verses that are so familiar to you, and maybe you could be thinking about what kind of answer there is in these verses for those struggling with where they are in life. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. I'm not going to sing this. Sorry, Jim. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. There is a season for everything for the good times and for the bad times. And some of you who are experiencing hard times, maybe even oppression, may wonder if anything is worth it. You may wonder why you should keep on working. Isn't that what verse 9 is getting at? What gain has the worker from his toil? So what do you say to the worker who works and works and works under the sun and doesn't seem to get anything in return? Yes, God put him there. Yes, it's from the hand of God. But what do you say to that worker who is so discouraged? Maybe his wages are taken from him. Maybe he's been harmed at work. Dina recently was telling me about a book she read called The Radium Girls, about these factory workers in the 1920s who were painting paint on these watches, and the paint was radium. It was radioactive, and so they got sick and awfully sick, and some of them died, and the company really didn't want to do anything about it. It's an awful story. And the preacher says, there's a time for everything. There's a time for work, and there's a time for justice. Verse 10, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. God has a beautiful time, an appropriate time for everything. There's a time for work. There's a time for suffering. But there is also a time for justice. So, is your work hard? Is it unbearable? That time will pass. A day will come when you are given your inheritance, your reward. Not a reward given because you are good. Not a reward given to you because you worked hard. But a reward given to those whose work is done in Christ and for Christ, for the Lord. There is a time for every matter under heaven. A time for work painful work, and yes, a time for judgment. And so this is how we get through the day. It makes all of our work good and fruitful. Look at Ecclesiastes 4, verse 6. 
Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. We find joy in our work when we quietly go about our business of working for the Lord from whose hand we received our work. Reminds me of 1 Thessalonians 4.11. Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your own hands. You may be discouraged by your life, about your work, about how to make God the point of your work. Look again at Ecclesiastes 3.11. God has put eternity into man's heart. I think this is the part of Ecclesiastes, at least in these two chapters, that has been a real struggle. Why did the preacher focus so intently on this desire to leave something behind? I mean, don't you just want to tell him to get over it? Like, dude, live in the moment. You know, provide for your family and then die. Be forgotten, right? I mean, you all like, amen, the Count Zinzendorf, you know, preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. But the crazy thing is, when you're reading these chapters, it's like the preacher isn't uh, taken to task, and he's not even fundamentally taking himself to task for wanting to leave something behind. In fact, he realizes that it's, it's evil. He actually calls it evil, this fact that you cannot be guaranteed to leave a legacy for your children and grandchildren. There's no guarantee of that. He calls that evil. So there's something in the preacher that says, I want my work to have meaning. There's something like inside him that is striving to leave a legacy. And that is not described as idolatry. That's not described as wickedness. In fact, the fact that we can't do that is described as evil and wrong. So what is it about the preacher that longs to leave something behind? And I think the answer is in chapter 3, verse 11. You see, God has put eternity into man's heart. I take that to mean that God has given each of us a sixth sense of eternity. We know in our heart of hearts that this world is not our home. We know that. I don't care if you're 16 or 86. You know at the core level that this world is not your home. That if you were only to live for what this world has to offer, that that would be a sad, sorry life indeed. You know that. Why do you know that? Because God, because you're made in God's image, and being made in God's image, he's put eternity into your heart. We know we aren't a bit of mildew growing on a tiny planet. We've been made in God's image. We're hardwired for God's glory. And the problem is we all reject God. Instead of working for Him, we work for ourselves. Instead of finding joy in Him, we find joy in ourselves and in our stuff. We want to find meaning in life and in our work, but we fail to do this. And so the only answer is found in the hand of God found in Christ. On his way to the cross, Jesus stopped to pray to his Father. And Jesus prayed, as he so often did, in such a way that others could hear him. So when Jesus prayed to his Father in heaven, he made sure to pray loudly enough so that all of his disciples could hear what he was saying. So as he was praying, Jesus was also teaching. And listen to what Jesus said to his heavenly Father, beginning in John 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life. Right, remember, what has God done? He's put eternity into your heart. He's hardwired you to want to have a legacy. That's from the Lord a long-lasting eternal legacy. What is eternal life? Knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ, Jesus prays, whom you have sent. Jesus says, I glorified you on earth. How did Jesus live his life? By glorifying his Father. He glorified his Father. I glorified you on earth, having 
accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus toiled. Jesus labored. He worked. And in all that work, he obeyed his Father who sent him. And in all that obedience, he showed to the world that there was no one more important to the Son than the Father. And so when the Apostle Paul writes to the churches and he says, this is how you ought to work, you need to work for Christ, obeying Him, glorifying Him in everything you do. Do you want a long-lasting legacy? Do you want a work that is meaningful and valuable? Well, know this, that God has put eternity into your own heart. And the only way for you to grab a hold of that eternity is to recognize that eternal life, which is the purpose of your existence, is found in submitting to Christ and trusting Him and following Him all the days and all the months and all the years of your life. The question is, can you find joy in your work? The answer is yes, but only if you stop looking for eternal life in your work and find eternal life in Jesus Christ. Only when you believe His work was to die on the cross for your sins will you be able to rejoice in the daily work that He's called you to do. Heavenly Father, we come before You and we thank You that You are the giver of work. And Lord, we know that You've, you've, you've placed all of us in, in unique places, in different places. You've given us all a job to do. And at various points in our lives, in our days, it's hard. But Father, You are the giver of every good gift. And you enable us to work for you and for your glory. And so we ask for your help. Lord, help us to receive work as from your hand. We ask that you would help us to submit our lives to Christ that we might know you and the Son whom you sent. And we pray that like Christ glorified you in the work he accomplished, that by your grace and for your glory, we might glorify our Savior in the work that you've given us to do. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.